So early on, before we began the series of the Revelation, I actually had thought about entitling the series, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Because I think it's important that we know what we can expect the world to be like as believers. As we await the return of our Lord, what kind of things are we going to see? What kind of things are we not going to see? What, what should we expect? And I think that's important for believers because when we, when we have unfounded or false expectations, what that typically only produces is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations, then, when we, we think that they are built on the Word of God, what they tend to do is actually cast doubt on the Word of God. That's, that's where they're, we think we have rooted our expectations. And when we begin to doubt the Word of God, we begin to doubt God Himself. Our faith begins to waver. But when we read the Word of God and we can see perfectly, the very thing that God describes in His Word is exactly what we see in our experience. Rather than casting doubt, that actually increases our confidence in the Word of God. We know this to be the case whenever we're reading, and it reveals to us very specific sins, very specific thought patterns, uh, the things that we see playing out in our society in, in the minds of men as they're, they're manifesting their depraved hearts. We see this in the Scriptures, and we say, the Word of God is true. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is true at every point. And uh, I really often wonder what, what people have felt or will feel on their deathbeds who I've personally heard say something to this effect. Well, Bible prophecies are being fulfilled all around us. I really believe that Jesus is going to come back in my lifetime. Well, then they lay on their deathbeds and, and you wonder, do, do they ever stop and think or admit, I guess my interpretation was wrong? No, they don't. Those things, have usually, they're usually pushed out of their minds. Rarely do they admit, I was, I was wrong. Their expectations were unfounded. They were built on uh, false interpretations. Revelation chapter 11, like the whole book, gives us a snapshot of the church during the present time between the two advents of our Lord. And we can, I think we've already been able to see throughout the, the first 10 chapters, but we can see in this chapter that what it says is exactly what's happening. There's no confusion. Very often with various interpretations of the book, you, people read and they say, well, this is what it says and this is what I'm, I'm told that it means. And then I look at the world in my time or for the past 2,000 years and I realize I'm not seeing anything that these people uh, are finding in the Word of God. Well, I think we've been able to see this is exactly descriptive of the church age between the two advents of our Lord. He has already come once. He will come again once. The question is, what should we expect while we're waiting? Here's the answer. This book gives the answer to the churches in Asia. This book gives the answer to the churches in our generation. This book gives the answer to the churches in every generation. Should the Lord tarry? What should the people of God expect the world to be like? Now let's read our text. Verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations." 
and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now just to recap some of the exposition that we did several weeks ago, Throughout Scripture, to measure means to mark off or to separate something, to, to, to use, a, to, to use a, a more spiritual term, to sanctify something. The temple and the altar and the worshipers are a picture of the church. But now we come a little further to the court outside the temple. The only place the worshipers would have been able to go in the temple complex. So the, the distinction between the temple, the altar, and the worshipers, and the court where the worshipers would have been, is not a distinction in the image that's being conveyed. It's a distinction in the experience of those who are being described here. The temple, the altar, the worshipers, the court, all point to the church in the present time, just like we've seen throughout the book. So here's the doctrine that we've drawn from this. The church of Jesus Christ in the present time can expect to experience a twofold dispensation of grace at the hand of God. We are at one and the same time kept and given over. We're held tightly in the palm of His hand and, as it were, dangled before the world. We are the sheep of His pasture and we are led like sheep to the slaughter. And so what I want to do is today is simply take the Scriptures and just show you these two parallel lines. These, I don't think these will be new truths, but I just want to show you these two parallel lines from the Scriptures. And then at the end, the third point, I want to take, pull some strings and sort of cinch this together to show you that these are parallel lines that actually do meet and cross in the purposes of God. They're not... Uh, Mutually exclusive. They're not contrary, the fact that we are kept and at the same time given over. These are actually cooperating realities in the purposes of God for His glory and for our good. So the first truth is this. We will be kept. The church, the people of God, the called out assembly, the Israel of God is a kept people. We are preserved and will be preserved. We are sustained and will be sustained. We are protected and will be protected. Now, I don't mean by this that the people of God should expect or can expect to be protected from all harm, physical or non-physical, because I think I'm going to prove that, that it's actually the opposite in the second point. I don't mean that Christians are going to be protected from poverty. I don't mean that Christians are going to be kept from sickness or disease. That Christians are somehow sustained physically so that they will not die like unbelievers. As a matter of fact, and this is not really the point that I'm emphasizing today, but I believe that as Christians we have every reason to believe from the Word of God and from our experience that when it comes to the general providences of God and the common effects of the fall upon this earth and the people on this earth, the people of God ought not expect anything less than those who are not the people of God. Now, may God do more? Absolutely. But when we begin to develop a theology of, I should expect health, I should expect wealth, and so on, we, we begin to, to, like Job's three, fin, th three friends, we begin to drive God into a corner that He's not driven Himself into. The saints of God may be poor, but the ungodly may also be poor. Saints of God may be wealthy, but the ungodly may also be wealthy. The people of God might be healthy, but the ungodly can also be healthy. Saints can get sick, and we know that the ungodly also get sick. 
Saints can endure awful tragedies, but lost people endure awful tragedies too. Saints of God die, many of them awful, excruciating, painful deaths. And the ungodly have also endured and suffered such things. So I don't mean by saying that we'll be kept, preserved, sustained, protected, that we somehow get a pass on all of those general effects of the fall and of sin upon the human race. What I mean is that the people of God will be preserved as the people of God. We will be kept in the state of grace, sustained in the faith. Having once entered into a saving union with Jesus Christ by the Spirit and in time reconciled to God... God Himself promises to keep us in that state. And nothing can change that. Now we just finished our doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in our confession. And in, in thinking through this, I thought providentially, you know, what a bummer. Because I don't want to rehash and recap everything that we've looked through for several weeks. But what we saw there is that the saints will persevere because it is God who preserves us by His grace. And so I want to think of it maybe from a little different perspective, this, this preservation, this keeping of the people of God. And, and consider it simply from God's intentions. One of our favorite texts, one of my favorite texts, because it's my favorite, I quote it all the time and hoping it will become one of our favorite texts. Isaiah 46.10, the end of the verse, God says, I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, if we believe that statement, I will accomplish all my purpose, if we believe that, and we can also verify that it is in fact God's purpose to save and keep a people, then we can settle once for all that God will save and keep a people. To put it in the form of a a syllogism, God will accomplish all His purpose. It is God's purpose to preserve a people for Himself. Therefore, God will accomplish His purpose to preserve His people. So think about God's purposes, even from eternity, what we typically call the covenant of redemption. We understand from the Scriptures and from that in eternity there was a plan between Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem a people. The Father says to the Son in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. In Isaiah 49, the Father speaking to the Son again, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There is this covenant. We see this in eternity. Here's the plan. Father, Son, and Spirit working out. Here's the goal. The nations. The Son asking. And the Father then putting into action, the plan to redeem this people. And in light of all of that, we typically refer to human history as redemptive history. The history of the world is the history of the Father, Son, and Spirit, each of them satisfying their various terms in the covenant of redemption. And so when we read the Scriptures, and this might help you if you're reading through the Bible, the story of Scripture is essentially the story of three sons, Adam, Israel and Christ. The first two pointing to, foreshadowing and preparing the way for the third. The first Adam is the progenitor of the human race. The first Israel is the progenitor of the human family of the Messiah. The last Adam 
And the true Israel, Jesus Christ, comes into the world as the culmination of all that preceded Him, satisfies the demands of the covenant of redemption as our federal head, so that we might become partakers of the blessings He has won. And then the Spirit of Christ comes and makes effectual application of all of that work to the souls of individuals through the covenant of grace. We are given the gifts that Christ has won. So when we come to the Scriptures, we can see in eternity there was an intention. We come to page 1 and we begin to work through human history. It is the history of God saving His people. This is the story of the Bible. The story of the eternal God. This is what Austin said. The eternal God breaking into time and space to bring a people into eternity with Him. That's the purpose of the Scriptures. That's what we see. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 10 and it says in verses 5 to 7, when Christ came into the world. So now we have a a third entrance. When Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, what's the Son's job? I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He he comes into the world. The Father has prepared a body for the Son. He came and took a body. Why? Because those to be redeemed were people of flesh and blood. The children share in flesh and blood. Why the incarnation? Because those whom God had purposed to save and keep for eternity are flesh and blood, body and soul. Christ says, I've come to do your will. The Son came into human history to do the will of the Father. What was the Father's will? Why did Christ come? Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. We read in John chapter 10, the Father gave the command to the Son, go lay down your life and take it up again. This is the purpose. Christ's coming in history was to infallibly secure the eternal safety of the people that the Father had purposed to save from all eternity. These are the intentions of God. Now if this is true, if if this has been God's intention and He has purposed to save a people... From eternity, if this work has been accomplished in Christ, then what would we expect to see littering the pages of Scripture except promises from God saying, I will keep you. You are mine. You can't get away. To put it in the form of uh, questions or, or a little catechism, so to speak. How can we be sure that the right ones will receive this salvation? 2 Timothy 2.19 But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. He will not miss one. He will not fail to save and keep one. It's no more difficult for God to see and redeem and keep a thousand worlds of sinners than it is for Him to keep you. He keeps every one of us as if we were just one. And He keeps each and every one as if we were all. He knows His and He keeps us. Well, how can we be sure that these people are going to respond properly to this work of God? 
Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the Father has given the sheep to the Son. Those same sheep will hear the voice of the Son. And the Father and the Son are working together to keep each of us. We could say that the entire Godhead is, to use our words, tied up in keeping every one of the people of God for eternity. Well, how can we be sure that having responded properly once, that we won't fall out of this state of grace? John 6, 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. What is that will? Christ, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Christ says, I'm resolved to do the will of my Father. What is that will? His will is that I save and keep all and lose none, but raise them up to glory. Therefore, Christ is resolved. He's determined. Think, think of it. He thinks and, and has thought, I am resolved, I'm determined to keep them, to raise them up on the last day, bring every one of them to glory. He's resolved. Well, how can we be sure that God might not at some point leave off the work? Perhaps He, he looks and says, well, I could save and keep this redeemed mass of human creatures or I could, I could go off and, and spend my time creating a million worlds, a million other universes just like them. How do we know? How do we know He won't just leave off the work and leave us to ourselves at some point? Hebrews 13, 5 says, Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God has promised. He's given us His Word. The very same Word that upholds the universe at this moment is the Word He has given to say, I will not forsake you. You will never leave Him and He will never leave you. He ensures us of that, assures us of that. Psalm 37, verses 28 and 29, For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Of course, we know these land promises in the Old Covenant are shadows fulfilled in our inheritance of the entire earth. God will not forsake. God will preserve. The meek shall inherit the earth. Now that's a, a glorious truth. Providence has preserved us unto grace, in grace, and will do so unto eternity. If you are a Christian, God will cease to be God before you cease to be His. He is as devoted to upholding His own name. Here's, the, here's the, the answer to the question. What will you do for your great name? I will not lose one. I will keep them. He is ensuring eternal salvation. His name is on the line. God would as soon dissolve into a million pieces scattered into the universe as fail to keep one of His dear ones.
Now, if you're not a Christian, none of this is, is hopeful at this point. If you perish without Christ, the same truth stands. The Lord loves justice. If you are not a Christian, God will cease to be God before He says, I guess I'll leave off eternal damnation. He would dissolve into a million pieces before He says, well, maybe I'll just let that one slide. But this is for the Christians a glorious truth. We will be kept. Now take that and lay it right beside the second truth. Equally as clear from the Scriptures, we have been given over. The language of the text is that of being given over, being trampled. The, the, the words say, leave that out. Literally, throw that out. Don't measure it. For, because, here's why. Here's why it's not to be measured. It, the court, has been given over. Specifically, handed over, entrusted or deposited to the nations, the unbelieving world. And they will trample it. The same word that's used in Luke 21 of the destruction of Jerusalem. The idea is they will stomp and smash like grapes in a wine press. What are they going to trample? The holy city. Again, look, we saw several weeks ago at this point, the, like we see elsewhere in Scripture, the court sort of blurs into the entire city. Revelation 21 tells us that the holy city is the new Jerusalem, the bride of the Lamb, the church. So think about this, the irony. Measure, but don't measure. Keep, but don't keep. Two experiences of the church kept and given over, preserved and yet delivered to persecution. Now this doesn't mean, because of the first truth, this doesn't mean that we're hung out to dry. It doesn't mean that we're left all alone. It doesn't mean that we're completely abandoned. It also doesn't mean that every Christian in every age is going to suffer a martyr's death. The picture is just that. It's a picture. The church in the present time is going to suffer persecution at the hands of those who are enemies of God and of His Christ. And again, this image is painted throughout the New Testament. There's nothing new here. The body of Christ as a corporate entity will follow in the footsteps of her head. What was it that the Old Testament prophets prophesied or, or, or predicted? The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings which would be fo followed by glory. Christ endured the cross and then was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The only way that we can enter into that inheritance as sons and co-heirs with Christ and be glorified with Him is to go the same way He went. He has not marked out a path that we can come to, look at, and then say, I'll go a different way and meet you at the end. That's not how this works. We follow Him. Now again, because we live in a fallen world, there are certain things that all men endure. And I want to focus specifically here on what the New Testament focuses specifically on, and that is the persecution that comes to us for righteousness' sake, not flat tires and migraines. What Peter calls suffering for doing good. 
persecution and tribulation that comes upon the people of God at the hands of other men because we have determined I will live according to the Word of God. We've been given over. This is also rooted in the practical reality of life in a fallen world. But because we are saints, because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, these realities come at us a different way. We live in a fallen world, which means it is inhabited by and very often governed in smaller spheres by men who are possessors of fallen minds. They're alienated from God. So then the various systems upon which our world operates are inherently fallen systems. Not all of them, but some of them. They're tainted with sin. Even if they're not inherently evil, the men who are uh, making the wheels turn, so to speak, are fallen men. Going beyond that, many of the systems in which our world, or upon which our world is built, are actually rooted in and built out of sin. Global economies are built on greed and theft. Governments are conducted by lies led by tyrants. If you stop and think about it, a large portion of what we call economic enterprise or just the economy, either what it is fundamentally or in the way that it's carried out, is it, it, it runs because people are greedy and idolatrous. It's not a sin to eat, right? Can we agree on that? It's not a sin to eat. But why is the fast food industry so popular? It's because people are lazy. It's not a sin to communicate, but why is it that, that the cell phone industry is, is a global enterprise? It's not a sin to wear clothing, right? We can agree with that. But why is it that certain types of clothing are, are so popular? Certain brands become so popular. Idolatry. That man wore that shirt there, so I need to have that shirt. Music is created by God, but why are certain musicians among the wealthiest people on the planet? Because we're idolatrous. What we call the economy, much of it runs because of the wickedness of men. Much of what we know and call Western society completely disregards what is right according to God's standards. They just redefine what is right and wrong. Now let's add to that. Everybody has to live in that world. But let's add to that several other truths that get to the, more to the point of what, what is our plight in this world. Men are by nature enemies and haters of God. This is the reason why society and culture is anti-Christ for the most part. Not only do they by nature lean against the things of God, but they will actively oppose that which they come to know is of God. And even those who pretend to be on the side of God many times are simply acting out of a vain misconception of God. It's just a, an idol of their imaginations. But men are by nature haters of the true God. Men by nature hate the light. Jesus Himself said, People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Men by nature hate exposure. Why? Lest His works be exposed. I'm not coming over there. They'll be able to see my works. I'm not coming to that light. And this wickedness of mankind is, is at every level defended and protected because people hate exposure. 
They hate to be exposed as wicked in their various roles of, of husband, wife, father, mother, child, employer, uh, employee, whatever it might be, citizen of a nation. They don't want to be exposed as wicked in whatever their role is. Wickedness in business is protected. Well, this is just how we do things. If, if you're, if you're going to get in the business, this is you just got to not have such a high moral standard. It, it's okay. This is how we do business. Wickedness in our societal structures is protected. Wickedness in politics is defended. All politicians are liars. Don't you know that? We just sort of write it off as if it's, if it's normal. And men will protect that. They're enemies of God. Lovers of darkness hate the light because it exposes them. And many of them will actually protect their right to wickedness as if you were attacking their family. Because that's their livelihood. They live off of iniquity. For many people, being exposed as wicked is synonymous with personal attacks. Men are haters of God. They hate the light. They hate being exposed by the light. And what are we? You are the light. You're the light of the world, Jesus said. Paul echoed that in Ephesians 5. You are light. Now think of this. Everything men hate... Light, exposure, don't expose my wickedness. You, you're the light. And what's our job? Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. What happens when that which is good and right and true comes into contact with the darkness? Exposure. It exposes their unfruitful works. It exposes their wickedness. The very existence of Christians in the world who have been distinguished both internally and externally by a radical reorientation of every faculty of our being is a spotlight on their wickedness. If you live out the difference that I've described for the past two weeks, you are a walking spotlight. Your existence will infuriate men. You don't, we've been there, right? You say, well, I didn't say anything. They just got mad. I've often said you don't see the cockroaches scatter until you turn on the lights. When it's dark, everything's fine. Business as usual. You flip the lights on and that's when they scurry. I read last week from 1 Peter 4. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Think about that. He doesn't say they're surprised when you come and thunder the law of God upon their debauchery, which sometimes we must do. He doesn't say they're surprised when you come and put your finger in their iniquity and say the reason that you're suffering is because you won't stop sinning. He says, no, they're surprised simply by the fact that you don't join and they malign you because you won't join us. Think of Lot. This man, he, he just showed up and now he's judging us. The fact that you will not join them sets before them a contrast. And they are reminded, whether they want to admit it or not, they are reminded of their wickedness. And what, what do you do in those situations when you're trying to hide in the dark? You're trying to hide and all of a sudden a little fire, a little glow begins to, to illuminate. You stomp it out. Get rid of it. We can't have that exposing us. Stomp it out. Now, like I've said in the past, this doesn't typically happen when their heresy is contrasted with our Chalcedonian formula of the deity of Christ. 
It happens when the practical outworking of your interchange is played out on the stage of public interaction. In other words, when their lack of parental concern is set beside your diligence in caretaking. What do they say? Helicopter parents. Look at them. They're, they're feeding their kids and giving them clothing and telling them to mind their manners. They're watching their children. They malign you. When their vulgar speech is exposed by your pure words, they notice it. They know it. They want to act like, well, this is just how I am. I've always been like this. I've never known any different. They know. When they are exposed as lazy because the new guy at work is a hard worker. And all of a sudden, they're knocked down. We've already seen this in the specific addresses of chapters 2 and 3. Because the saints had determined to live their lives in the fear of God, there are things they would not do. And because they would not do those things, they, were, they suffered. We will not participate in your idolatry. We, we will not come to your, your feasts and your celebrations. That's fine, but you can't have a job. You can't work, and we're going to tell everybody not to buy your product. They exposed the, the heresy of the Judaizers. And what did that bring upon them? Attacks from ethnic Jews that Jesus called a synagogue of Satan. In our own day, very often living off of one income out of conviction means you're going to have less than other people. Observing the Sabbath might mean you lose a job or, or don't get a promotion. Dealing honestly in your work might mean you have to work longer hours for less money. You make a mistake. And somebody comes to you and says, you made a mistake. And you say, I'll fix it. And I'll do it for the price that I said before. And if that means I have to work longer and make less money, I'll do it. Because I'm an honest person. You see, these types of things, they, they bring hardships upon us in the world. And as our society becomes increasingly more secularized, we're going to see this happening on a larger scale. This is why Christ, in describing the citizens of His kingdom, says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all manner of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now prophets, they were preachers. People hated the preachers. And he says, that's, that's a blessing. Expect it. Let me read you several other texts and, and hear these as, as God's Word to you. John 16, 33. In, in the world, you will have tribulation. Broadly, tribulation. And very specifically, for righteousness' sake, this world is the stage for tribulation. Tribulation is to be had here. Not the next world. This is the world of tribulation. Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There he's speaking to saints. He's speaking of the eternal kingdom. He says, if you're going to get there, here's the pathway, tribulation. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice he did not say, indeed all who desire to preach publicly on the street corner will be persecuted. He says, all who desire to live a godly life. The way that you live brings this. And so, you see two very simple, very basic truths. We are kept, we are His people, and we will suffer. Now let's draw these strings together because we might hear all of that 
and we say, okay, I see parallel lines, and I know from math class that parallel lines, that means that they never meet. But you're saying that they do meet, and so we hear these things, and very often we will affirm them, yes, the Bible teaches that, yes, the Bible teaches that, but I just assume that they are friends that never have to be reconciled. The fact of the matter is they actually do meet. And I would argue that it is through our being given over and through our suffering that we are kept by God. That His purposes are accomplished in us. And so we don't have to say, well, I will rejoice in being kept. What a glorious truth. But I guess I'll have to suffer and so I'm going to be really sad about that. We don't have to be like that. We can rejoice in both. What is God's purpose specifically? Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. I'm making you like My Son. And I'm going to keep you until you are conformed to His image. And the fact of the matter is that according to the Word of God, being given over to suffer is one way in which we are made into the image of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we are to follow Christ, we have to take up our cross, the instrument of suffering. And when we suffer, all we're doing is following Christ. This is why we ought not consider it a strange thing. This is what we're doing. If we're going to be like our teacher and like our master, then we have to be trained up in the same school. And what was his school? He learned obedience through that which he suffered. And so our being handed over is directly related to Christ who was also delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We don't look at Christ and say, well, well, I guess the Father didn't love Him if He put Him through that. No, it was because the Father loved Him that He, he put Him through that to exalt Him. So Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What an indictment on people that the world loves as its own, with open arms. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me. Now this is going to become even more plain as we get to chapter 12 onward. The very animosity that we experience in the world is because we are His. It's because we're like Him. It's because we're being made into His image. Peter says, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why, Peter? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. It's bitter to suffer for doing good. Why? Because Christ suffered, and He did no wrong. All He did was good, and He suffered. You're following Him. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings 
so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Again, you see the pattern. Christ suffered, entered into His glory. We suffer, and then we will enter into our glory. So we always have to keep these two in the balance. Our plight is like the Apostle Paul. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Kept, and yet handed over. If we are being kept, we will suffer. And if we are suffering, it is in order to our being kept. Now, how do we, how do we apply this? How do we make application? Well, we make the most use of our suffering. We're, we don't accept these things as merely passive. We have to be sensitive to what's happening, praying according to this truth in specific instances. Let me, let me give you a list here of things that, that suffering produces. And we'll turn these into prayers. Suffering produces steadfastness. James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is, what is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing for the Christian? It's bearing the image of Christ. Suffering produces steadfastness, which is a part of being conformed to Christ. So then, when you suffer, pray, Lord Use this circumstance to increase in me steadfastness in the faith that I might be able to endure and so be made more like my Savior on the other side. Secondly, suffering increases our desires for heaven or for Christ's return. Again, 1 Peter 4, we, he says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. As we suffer, it helps us to prepare for the day when we will no longer suffer. When His glory is revealed, that's when we are glorified. And so we can pray, Father, use this to fix my eyes upon the coming glory of Christ, to, to, to long for that day. Thirdly, suffering draws us away from the things of this world. This is sort of the negative aspect of that same truth. Not only are we, we drawn up to Christ, but we're drawn away from the world. Almost all of Hebrews 11 is just a catalog of this truth. As we suffer and as we endure, our fingers are being pried of, off of the things of this world. Suffering reminds us that we are strangers and aliens here. Suffering reminds us that we have a heavenly city and homeland. Suffering points us to the reward that is still to come. When we suffer, we're being reminded this world's not worthy of you. And this is again why Paul could say that the world was crucified to him and he to it. His mind was fixed on another world. And so we pray, Father, in this time, help me to see the brevity of earthly pleasure. Help me to see this world cannot satisfy Help me to see that I shouldn't be so caught up in earthly things knowing that it's only a short time and they'll all be behind me. Fourthly, suffering increases our felt reliance upon God. Psalm 59, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. 
Oh, my, he calls God his strength. Oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. The, the more that you suffer and the more that we must endure, the more we come to a cognizant recognition of the fact that I am actually taking refuge in God. And the more we do so, the more it becomes a reflex. And the more natural it becomes, the greater we're able to rejoice. And so we can say, I rejoice in suffering because it gives me an opportunity to fly back to Him. And so we pray, Father, You have been and are my refuge and fortress. Give me eyes for You alone in times of distress. Number five, suffering allows us to bear, or suffering itself bears a testimony for Christ in us and to us. If suffering is to conform us to the image of Christ, then as we endure suffering, I am reminded that I'm His. Romans chapter 8, 16 and 17, Paul says, "...the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be may also be glorified with Him. It bears a testimony in us. I'm suffering. God is making me like His Son. And so we can pray, Father, thank You for taking time out of Your busy schedule to conform me into the image of Your Son. Thank You for reminding me through suffering that I am no less Yours than Christ Himself and for the blessing of sharing in His sufferings. Very often, we'll talk about this starting tonight, but we want assurance of salvation. Struggling with assurance. I'm struggling with assurance. We want assurance, but we want it our way. We want it on our terms. Peter said, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Perhaps your lack of assurance is directly related to your unwillingness to be insulted for Christ. When you know you, this will be a great opportunity to take a little insult and you silence yourself, you're just practicing to, 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 to squelch the Spirit. There's going to be no assurance in living that way. Number six, suffering serves to advance the gospel. Paul said in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And he was in prison. So we know that God can and we can make use of suffering to advance the gospel. So in suffering, pray, Father, open my eyes to see the ways in which through this trial I can advance the gospel. Again, very often we want the gospel to go to the nations, but we don't want to suffer. It doesn't work that way. Number seven, when we suffer, God's power is perfected in our weakness. God, Christ said to, to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you want to see the power of God manifested in your life? Then you have to become weak. And so we can pray, Father, as I am trampled down, as I am humiliated for your sake, display your power. Don't raise me up to show, to show my power. Show your power. Number eight, suffering. Through suffering, we know Christ more intimately. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. Becoming like Him in His death. 
This is all connected. The only way that we can we, we come to know Christ intimately in this way is through suffering like Him, sharing in His sufferings. And so we can pray, Father, as I suffer, give me a heart and mind to look beyond myself, to know Christ as I'm suffering. Help me to forget me and teach me something of the greatness of the God-man who endured far worse than I ever will. We, we often wonder what... what was happening in the mind of this Savior on the earth as He endured. What kind of man is this? How do, you, how do you get that mind? How can you get a taste of that mindset? You endure what He endured for the reasons He endured it. And you seek Him in it. Lastly, suffering helps us to increase our prayer and teaches us to wait upon the Lord. Psalm 62, For God alone... My soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. You read the context there. He's suffering attacks from other men. And He says, then I'll just wait. I'll wait in silence. He's my salvation. I don't need to save myself. I'll wait. I've said it before. We've all but lost the art of waiting upon the Lord. To be like Christ, we must suffer and endure, and wait, and pray. We want to learn how to pray again, but we don't want to suffer. Don't force me to pray. Just, just, just kind of tell me. That's not what happens. When you're suffering, for righteousness' sake, you learn how to pray real quick. That's, that's the school. And so we can pray, Father, I understand that you're making me like your son. I do not ask that you rescue me unless that be your will, but that you strengthen me in this time, and that you be near me, that you hold my hand, and you wait. We assume acting in power and triumphalism and domination is the way to victory. But our goal is not dominion. It's Christ-likeness. That's the goal. Christ conquered, how? Through suffering. So why do we think that our past is going to be any different than His was? So rejoice and be glad that you are being kept, even and especially when you suffer. Let's pray.